You're, I'm not talking about success or big or grand or someone thinks you're wonderful. By holy, I mean believing to the point that you dare to dream and believe that God could actually change the world significantly through you. I just love the passion of Chip Ingram, and you're going to need to strap in for these next few episodes here on the Pathway to Purpose podcast. I'm Ken Powell, your host, and I really am providing you with some advance warning because if you continue forward, you're going to receive some powerful, wonderful reminders and strong encouragement for your Christian leadership journey. These episodes just aren't for the faint of heart. And if you want to take significant strides in your role as a Christian leader to help transform the world for Christ, well, hey, stay tuned. And if you didn't catch the previous episode from Chip, please make sure you go back and hear the introduction to this five-part series. Chip Ingram is CEO and teaching pastor of Living on the Edge Ministries, and this series of talks was recorded at an FCCI international conference. And honestly, it's become part of the core teaching content here at FCCI in our business leadership groups. By the way, if you're not really receiving ongoing support, prayer, and encouragement from other Christian business leaders, please consider joining an FCCI BLG, a business leadership group. You don't need to operate in a silo out there as a business leader. And there's so much value from regular interaction with others who are in a similar role and pursuing similar growth in their calling and pursuing greater influence for Christ through their business platform. Learn more and let us know about your interest in a BLG at FCCI.org. On this episode, Chip is going to talk about ordinary people doing extraordinary things for God's glory. And it all starts with having a dislocated heart. Here's Chip. What I would say is, will we answer God's call to make a significant impact at this moment? I think we've got a great door of opportunity. Our vision is clear from Matthew 28. And what will it mean for each of us? I think three things. Number one, and this is why you're here. I love it. I'm just so impressed. Modeling. You cannot impart what you don't possess. I can't. There's no use telling someone in China or someone in your company about having the kind of marriage that the Bible talks about if you're not modeling it. There's no use telling people about how important the Bible is if you're not reading it or practicing it, right? It always starts with us. My time with God. My personal integrity. My role as a dad or a mom. I've got to model. We have to be what we want others to become. In fact, I think it's the greatest principle of parenting in all the world. You know, whatever techniques we've learned, I will tell you how your kids are going to turn out. Whatever you be, who you are, not what you say, not what school you drop them off at, not what words they hear, whatever you be, your being, they become by and large. Modeling is the most powerful form of transformation on the face of the earth. The second thing we're going to have to do is not only model the message, but focus. My prof, Howard Hendricks, says, the key to focus is concentration. The key to concentration is elimination. And I would add, the key to elimination is stewardship. When you're an entrepreneur, when you have a lot of drive, when you have a zillion things you think you can do, you try to do too many. What's your stewardship? What's your core competency? What has God called you to do? Practice, you know, I'm not good at this, by the way, either. I mean, the part of the reason I like to talk to people like you is it's like I'm talking to a mirror. Everything I'm saying to you, I desperately need. In fact, I've just went through a process of really some hard decisions of focus, focus, focus. What is it only you can do? 
What's the passion? Not everything. What is it God has called you to do in your family, in your church, in your ministry, in your company, and what is your role that no one else can do? And that means you're going to say no and disappoint a number of people. The average Christian says yes to things to please people instead of please God. And the fear of man is a snare. But blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. It's going to require focus. Modeling, focus, and finally, I think it's going to require a holy ambition. A holy ambition. By holy ambition, this is what I mean. Those two words in Christian circles don't go together too often. Holy means it's God-honoring. I'm not talking about success or big or grand or someone thinks you're wonderful. By holy, I mean believing to the point that you dare to dream and believe that God could actually change the world significantly through you. I mean, let, let me ask you, if you sat around with a glass of tea around the pool later or playing some golf or around a supper table, and someone would say to you, okay, the God of the universe has decided that he's going to join you for supper, and he's going to go around the room and come in the second person of the Trinity and in the resurrected body of Jesus and say, whatever you need, I'll give you. Time, wisdom, money, staff. What's your dream? If anything, if God could use you to accomplish anything in all the world, what's the dream and the passion of your heart that you, you start moving in that way, but you say, oh, well, that'd take too much time. Oh, I got that covered. Oh, that would take grow and mature. And, 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 but what, what, what area is it for you? Is it a part of the world? Is it seniors? Is it Hispanic? Is it unwed mothers? Is it starting a school? What would you do if you had unlimited resources and unlimited time to accomplish for the glory of God? What would bubble up in your heart? See, I, I think there's way too little ambition in the body of Christ. Every time someone has a, a big idea, oh, that's arrogant. You know, James and John had a big idea. Remember that big idea they had? They had their mom go ask Jesus about Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, mom, please ask him, ask him, ask him. You know, when you come into your kingdom, one of us would like to be on your right and one would be on your left. And they argued constantly about what? Who is the greatest among them? Here's my point. I can't find a passage in the New Testament where Jesus rebukes them for the desire. But what's he say to them? Do you really want to be great? Yes. Then here's how. Become a servant. Do this. Do that. But you know what? That, that dream for significance, that dream to change the world, that dream to make a major impact, I think it's God-given. It just can't be about you. It can't be about your name on the building and, and what people think of you. It's got to be holy. But I think we need an ambition. I think we have fallen into what Francis Schaeffer years ago said was going to be the, 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 the coffin of the church, personal peace and prosperity in America. I think we've unconsciously made Jesus our self-help genie to give us great marriages, wonderful kids, everyone upwardly mobile, have all of our kids, grandkids, and everyone get the finest of educations, better jobs than us, making even more money, pristine marriages, every kid turning out right, and then have 35 people holding hands at our private chalet singing Kumbaya and giving God the glory. <laughs> and that is an American warped view of the gospel. People who love God with all their heart have kids that make terrible decisions. People who love God with all their heart get cancer. It's a fallen world. The issue is, 
What has God called? What's your holy ambition? And here's, here's what I'd suggest in our next sessions together. I'm going to suggest that there are specific, measurable evidences from Scripture that if you fulfill six conditions, God would like to fulfill your holy ambition. In fact, as you learn to listen to Him and learn to pray and make your number one holy ambition to know Him and enjoy Him, He will actually put dreams and desires on your heart that are so big and so beyond you that you say, that's impossible. You can never use an ordinary person like me to do an extraordinary thing like that. And Jesus will whisper in your ear by the Holy Spirit, you don't understand. This book is about ordinary people who do extraordinary things. If they don't do extraordinary things, and if they weren't ordinary, then I wouldn't get the credit. I mean, how, how ordinary is a prostitute named Rahab? How ordinary is a big mouth like Peter? How ordinary is two guys with anger management problems like James and John? How ordinary is a guy who is a revolutionary who's trying to take over the world secretly, and he becomes one of the disciples, the other Judas? God wants to take ordinary people to do extraordinary things where he gets the credit. But if you don't start to dream and to think and to believe and move, you will uncover what we're seeing in America. Has anyone turned on primetime TV from 7 to 11 o'clock and not thrown up lately? I mean, do you understand? I mean, if we put you in a time capsule for 20 years and we woke you up, and we put you in front of your TV now as a born-again Christian who loves God and believes in the Bible, you would be utterly shocked. And today, there's simply no outrage whatsoever. And that says more about us than our culture. The problem that people... Get off it. The problem isn't the educational system and the problem in Hollywood. When salt isn't salty and light isn't penetrating, you get exactly what we get right here. The problem isn't out there, problem's in here. Repentance always begins with the household of God. It's got to start with me. I'm the one that's got to say, God, am I the man you want me to be? It's got to start with you. Am I the woman, the mother you want me to be? God, is this whole business, I say it's yours, I say you own it all. What's the dream for the business? Is it just success and I pass it on to the next kids and the next kids and the next? Why have you entrusted this to me? What are you doing in the world? What's your holy ambition? I believe, if you believe your vision statement, you guys are right on. You need to change the world, not just run successful businesses that have little fish on the cards and treat your employees a little bit better than other people. You need to have businesses that have a kingdom vision and purpose and dream that do things that people shake their heads and say, how did that happen? And you say, honestly, I don't know. God did it. We're going to cover four of the six and Nehemiah is going to be our model. And we're going to find that there ha there's six conditions, I believe, from Nehemiah's life. Business guy. And by the way, study his life sometime. The whole history of God's people hinged, not on a prophet, on a businessman. A businessman who caught the vision, and instead of feeling bad for being wealthy, Instead of feeling bad for being smart, instead of feeling bad for having position and influence, he saw it as a stewardship and thought, you know something? Wow. Maybe there's a reason I'm the right-hand man of the most powerful man in the world, and maybe God put me here on purpose to fulfill his purposes, and maybe that's where he put you. Maybe that's where he put you.
Let's look at our model. Nehemiah. Let's open it up to chapter 1. They're in the notes, but you can open your Bible if you'd like to follow along. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakali, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. Kislev is about November, December. The 20th year is reference to the king Artaxerxes of Persia. While I was in the citadel of Susa, that's the summer capital because it's up in the mountains, a little bit cooler, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some of the men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So he's up here in the mountains, up here in Susa. It's cool. It's nice. He's the wine taster of the king, which gives him real political clout. And so he has to taste everything the king has. So, you know, all those steaks and all that good wine and all that good food. You know, he's probably got his own Lexus chariot. He has a Rolex sundial because, you know, you hang out with the king. Eats the best food. Has an Armani toga. I mean, this guy is living in the lap of luxury. He loves God with all of his heart. And he's in Susa. Then Han and I and his brothers come. He says, hey guys, so what's happening with the Jewish remnant? I know Zerubbabel went back and... I heard that, you know, the uh, temple project's not going that well. No, it's not. And I heard Ezra went back and he started preaching the word, but I mean, the people aren't even worshiping the Lord. No, it's not. So, uh, so how's it going? He asked about the people. He asked about the place. And the response is, the people are in big trouble and they're a disgrace. Not only do they have problems, they so unreflect the name of our God. They so unreflect who Yahweh is, His purity and His holiness and His love. They are so living in a way that's counter. Does this sound familiar? Isn't this like right out of the pages of the Wall Street Journal or Christianity Today stuck together? This, this, this is our world. And a business guy hears about it. And instead of feeling bad about his position and his wealth and his intelligence and his influence, let's find out how he responds. And we're going to learn the first condition. Notice what it says. He says, When I heard these things about the people, about the walls burned with fire, the gates torn down, I sat down and wept for some days. I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And I would ask in your notes, if not in your Bible, to circle the word sat, circle the word wept, circle the word mourned, circle the word fasted, and circle the word prayed. I want you to know this guy's life can't be going any better. His business is booming. His personal peace and prosperity is at an all-time high. But notice the first thing he did is he stopped. Drive is a good thing. Drivenness is bad. He stopped. I mean, he sat down. He assessed the situation. He just didn't have the remote, remote going, oh, world vision. Boy, that's what, look at this poor kid. Uh, next thing. Oh, that's really terrible too. Oh, that's real, I can't believe this. Happened. He stopped. He stopped. He said, I'm, I'm not going to just keep you know, indifferently pushing this stuff by me and say, there's other people and that's another country and they got all their issues. He stopped and then he emoted. 
He let it get past all the defense mechanisms and he thought, I'm living in the lap of luxury and I'm in the center of God's will, but God's people and God's place are absolutely in ruins. And because God's agenda, not his, God's agenda is not being fulfilled, he had to just stop and he sat down and he looked at it and then he just wept. And my question for you would be what I have to ask myself, when is the last time you wept over God's agenda not being fulfilled? Not that one of your kids is in ICU. Not that business is going south. Not that, you know, you've got a biopsy report. Those are all reasons to weep. But when's the last time that you took a walk in your neighborhood and you just looked at every garage door, every house, or driven around and said, I wonder if they're going to heaven, where they're going to hell. I wonder if they're going to heaven, where they're going to hell. And I wonder if I care. When's the last time you saw something on the news or or saw what's happening, or read an article about what is happening in the church, and what's happening with refugees, and what's happening with things around the world, and you let it seek in, when you say, oh, God. And you emoted. And prayed. And I'm, I'm going to guess, it's been a while. See, what you're going to find is the condition that God is looking for as he sat down, he wept, and it just wasn't an emotional knee-jerk, then he mourned. That's, that's, a, that's a grieving word. That's, that's a loss. That's a sense of things aren't right. And then he acted and he said, you know, I'm only one man. I've got one position. What can one man do? But when you don't know what to do, what do you do? You remove all the physical distractions of media in our day especially and food. And you say for a day or for two or for three, I'm going to seek the face of God. I'm only one man. I'm only one woman. We're only a small business. What can I do? But I can't stand seeing God's agenda in our community or the United States or in this country go downhill. So I'm going to fast and I'm going to pray and I'm going to say, God, Will you show me what one little ordinary person could do? And I want you to know, whatever you show me, I'll do. And if you haven't got a lot of answers to your prayers lately, you will get some fast, clear, and strong. But what will happen is he'll give you some answers, and you go, oh, you don't really want to do that, do you? I mean, not now. I mean, I mean later, of course. I mean, later when we're more financially solvent, if the kids are older, and Right? The eyes of the Lord are going to and fro throughout the whole earth, that he might strongly support those whose heart is fully his. And the first prerequisite, I believe, is what I call a dislocated heart. A dislocated heart. I don't mean a dislocated hip or a dislocated shoulder. You can get those, you know, landing wrong in a football game. But I mean he's living in the lap of luxury and his life is working, but his heart is not about his own personal peace, prosperity, agenda, and family. His heart is bleeding and broken for God's agenda. And the reason we don't want to go there is because we know there's probably going to be some step of sacrifice, some step that we're going to take that's going to make me uncomfortable. But that's the first step to God looking into your heart and my heart and saying, I want to strongly support you. And part of this is we have such a warped view of God. We don't think, we don't believe He's good. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. We think if we take a step of faith, if we step out, you know, God's arms are crossed and, you know, if I really get serious, I mean really serious, I'll end up in Africa and I'd hate it and there'd be a hut and there'd be snakes going around all night and I don't want to go there. So I'll just write a little check and hope everything goes better. God doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. 
But he wants you to have a dislocated heart. My definition of a dislocated heart is a God-given concern for others, and here's the key word, that propels us out of our comfort zone. It is a passionate concern for God's agenda that supersedes our own desires for personal peace and prosperity. Propels is the one key word, and comfort zone are the other two. And we could spend a lot of time developing multiple, multiple examples of a dislocated heart. But I would say the greatest one in all of Scripture is Jesus. He left the glory of heaven for a dirty stable. Who, although he existed in the form of God, Philippians 2, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant. In the main form of, of a servant, he took on what? Becoming a servant, even to the point of death. Death on a cross. Have this attitude in yourselves, earlier it says, that was in Christ Jesus. Or the Apostle Paul, I don't know about you, I, I don't think I could ever pray Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. Do you remember what Paul prays? He says, Lord, if you could take all the Jewish nation, all my brothers, and you could take every single one of them, and you could usher them all to heaven, I'd go to hell for it. That's what he prays. I would be accursed. I'd be accursed if you would save all of them. That's a dislocated heart, people. He wasn't getting up every day checking his little PDA and, you know, checking, you know, how Wall Street come out and are all the kids and everything going okay and is everything, you know. We get so controlling, so moment by moment, day to day, week to week, management by objectives, that sometimes we just totally forget there's a great big world and a great big God. And you didn't ask for it, but you worked hard for it, most of you. And you just happened to be smarter and wealthier and more powerful than 99% of the people on all the earth. And if 80% of all the wealth of born-again Christians is in North America, and you're in the top 1% of all the people in North America, is there a sneaking suspicion that possibly you have been given this wisdom and wealth and relationship with Jesus and power and brains to actually be a part of radically bringing the Great Commission to reality in our lifetime? I mean, what, what if that was your goal? I mean, what, what, I mean, honestly, what if you really thought eternity is really eternity, you only go around once, and that probably the greatest way to turn out great kids and great grandkids and, and have a great life would be, I want to commit myself through my business as its platform to reach and fulfill the great commission in my lifetime. You know what? The world is flat. It can happen. What's missing is people whose hearts are dislocated. In America today, the average Christian gives about 2.7 to 3% of their income. And the poor are among the most generous over against the wealthiest in our country. It's not a resource issue. Jesus, Paul, or I would say you. And what I find is the people that take those kind of radical steps, I've never found someone who's had a dislocated heart and it begins to move them in a direction where they say, boy, I wish I didn't care so much. They experience God. Amazing things happen when you do something bigger than yourself. Your marriage gets closer. Amazing thing happens when you have this vision, this dream that isn't all about the kids and how many games they won or didn't they win or didn't they make the team. Or You know, you, you meet the average evangelical believer and you would think the most important thing in all the world is what night they play on their youth sports and who won. A year from now, will anybody remember? 
And what are we producing? We're producing a bunch of narcissistic kids who think the world revolves around me. You know, I'm 5 or 8 or 10 or 11, and my parents and all these adults yell and scream and pay all this money and give me these $200 uniforms so we can go out and do things that we really can't figure out what we're doing most of the time. And I'm, and I'm thinking, and then we tell one another, I'm a faithful father. I really love my son. I've never missed a youth sport game. Try taking the ball in the backyard and throwing it to him and having some fun and inviting a few of his friends over. What are we, what are we doing to eight, nine-year-olds who think, you know, there's two men on. I'm up to bat. What, what, what will my grandfather think? At eight years old, he ought to be thinking, hey, Grandpa, what did you think of that one? And he hits it in the backyard. We've we got whole, whole evangelical families that eat 90% of their meals in minivans because they're on their way from ballet back to piano to soccer to baseball. And then when the seasons overlap, it is like insanity. And we compliment one another with how faithful we are as parents. And then we have our little narcissistic little kids grow up and who are rebellious and think the world revolves around them. And then they rebel. And we can't fit. And then we go back, Proverbs, raise up child up in the Lord. And, and then you, you, I get, I don't think we're raising them up in the Lord. I think we're raising up in success-oriented American culture. And you need to have a holy ambition that's way bigger than your family, as important as family is. And way bigger than now, as important as now is. And when you do, you'll find kids and grandkids and marriages that as you give, you receive. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. We have been seduced by our culture, people. And you don't need a lot of people to make change, but you know, you know where change comes? When leaders change. When that top 1% gets it and says, I'm not living that way. What a powerful reminder from Chip. And I've had similar conversations with numerous Christian business leaders in the past several weeks and months. I'm aware of dozens of key influencers around the country that are committed to pursuing the life of dedication that Chip has described as he outlined what's required to achieve the characteristic of a dislocated heart. You know, really battling against the norms of our society to live into the calling that God has placed before us in his word. If this message resonates with you, then consider linking arms with the hundreds of Christian business owners and leaders here at FCCI as we want to support your calling to transform the world through Christ. And would you let others know about this great leadership content here on the Pathway to Purpose podcast? Thanks for listening, and may God empower your journey as you lead a company for Christ.